0: Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Before, we, uh, before I get into my message today, I want to kind of springboard off of what Sally shared about Jesus being Our King and Jesus being my King. You know, this is something we've we've talked about. I've never done uh, a series per se on the Kingdom of God, but the Kingdom of God is what Jesus preached. Um, He didn't just preach get saved and go to heaven. He preached about the Kingdom of God, and uh, we've mentioned it. We've talked. It's worked its way into several different messages about how we are not really in America accustomed to thinking in terms of. Uh, subjects of a kingdom. But we are if we are believers in Christ. Uh, And it's nice to think that our Savior who loves us is the king of creation. But sometimes I think we forget that he intends to be our king, my king and your king as well. And maybe you had to read uh, Plato's Republic at some point in your probably your college career. Did you ever have to take a political science class where you had to read The Republic by Plato? Surely I am not the only one that ever had to read that. There's one. Any, seriously? Am I going to be speaking in a vacuum here? Well, it's a, I could say it says whatever I want then, can't I? <laughs> not that it's the Word of God. It doesn't matter all that much, but it is. It's, it's a, it's a uh, conversation Uh, between these philosophers uh, uh, talking about what is the best kind of government. And uh, really where they land, Plato talks, he he builds this imaginary kingdom where the ruler of the kingdom is the philosopher king, which is kind of another expression of the idea, you've probably heard the idea of the benevolent dictator. Meaning uh, in Plato's perfect world, power is concentrated in one individual but it's an individual who is enlightened and benevolent. And so if the person with absolute power in your life has your best interests at heart and has the ability and the resources to make those happen in your life, there's nothing wrong with having somebody like that over you. However, as the discussion develops, they recognize this person doesn't really exist. So the second best idea for our protection and our goodness is a republic where everybody has a voice in it. Now, we think, and in terms of human government, that has carried forward, hasn't it? We believe, you know, for all of its faults and all the problems, this is the best place to live, a democratically elected representative republic where we all have a voice, we all have a part to play. But, and that's because kings, human kings throughout history, have been bad for history. They've been bad for people. Why? Because they're born sinful like everybody else. And we say, well, I, I could never be as bad as some of these ancient kings. It's because you've never had the opportunity to be as bad as these ancient kings. You've heard the phrase, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Uh, and there is a great deal of truth into that. Some of the worst examples in biblical history didn't turn bad until they had the reins of power in their hands. So what a great concept to know that the king of the universe has my best interests at heart. And in him, there is not only no sin, there's no shadow of turning. He not only has absolute authority, but he absolutely has the best plan for my life and for yours. So he is not just the king. He is my king. Mine in terms of I possess this relationship with him, but also means that I can't just, I can't afford to just think about him abstractly as the king. I have to recognize he has kingly authority in my life. All right. Did I express the word? Was that was on your heart, sister? <laughs> I didn't put... All right. Perfect. I know that's exactly what you are done. Anyway, that's just kind of what rose up in me as you brought that forth. I'm glad you brought it forth. I really do. I pre- all right. Listen, we're going to be looking at Galatians for two or three weeks. Paul's whole message here in this letter is the superiority of Christ over the law and how his crucifixion and resurrection accomplished everything that God wants for us. Some quick background on this letter. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Just kidding, I'm not going to do a full review today. This, this letter was written, I think, uh, there, there are two possibilities depending on where and when in Paul's journeys. You remember when we were in the book of Acts, uh, if, there's this fun, if you're into this sort of thing, it's kind of fun to see what, where his travels take him and when, who he meets, and then you try to line that up with the letters he wrote. Ah, we can see here he was at this point in Acts when he wrote Ephesians, when he wrote Philippians, whatever. He wrote this from jail, and this is where he was. You can find these things in Acts. And depending on which visits he's referring to in this letter... Uh, gives us a date of either 49 or somewhere between 53 and 56 AD. Not that it matters, just trying to give you, a, again, a reference point when in history this happened and to remind you that this is something that happened in history. He wrote this letter to real people. Uh, but you know, he references a couple of visits he made to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles there in, uh, in the church in, in Jerusalem. And we'll talk about that, that one of those visits a little bit later. But you may also remember from Acts that there were certain congregations that Paul visited on a kind of regular basis on his missionary journeys. He went out and he established these churches, he encouraged these churches, then he went around, then on his way back he would visit them again. He traveled his sort of the hub, the you know, headquarters was Antioch. In Syria, You remember there were two Antiochs, and Antioch in Syria was sort of the the missionary hub. This is where Paul operated out of. So he would leave Antioch in Syria, then he would travel up through the cities in Galatia, which was not a city, it was a region. The letter to the Galatians is unique among the epistles in that it was not written to an individual or even an individual church, but to churches in the region of Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey roughly the same geographical area. And so there were cities there, the churches in, in that he's addressing in his letter to the Galatians are churches you've heard of in the book of Acts because they pop up again and again. The other Antioch, Antioch of Pisidia, um, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe. You remember those cities from Acts? These are who he's writing to. These are churches that he was close to, that welcomed him, that he had a real-life investment in. And so when you see what he's writing about, you can almost instantly see how passionate he is about his subject. And his subject is clear. This isn't, you know, you take Romans, which is a long letter that really, you know, when we looked at Romans, you know, I've, I've referred to it for years as Paul's magnum opus. This is the closest thing to systematic theology we find in the Bible. He lays out the general doctrine of Christianity. Uh, and it's, a, it's not a wide-ranging Uh, or ongoing correspondence like it is with his letters to the church in Corinth. You know, he addressed specific issues, answered specific questions, and made specific corrections. But it was over a wide range of subjects when he wrote uh, the letters to the Corinthians. He's addressing one issue with the Christians in the churches of Galatia, and that issue is legalism. Specifically, Judaistic legalism. We've talked about these guys before because they were also major players in the book of Acts. It's always helpful to remember that the early Christians were almost all Jews. They were all Jewish Christians. And this is precisely what Jesus said would would happen. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem then all Judea, then Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So it starts right there in Jerusalem, and then as it spreads out of the city, these are still going to be largely Jewish people that are affected. And it happened fast. The church grew fast, but it grew from Jewish converts. These were Jews who came to realize within days, practically, of the, of the resurrection, certainly days of the ascension, that Jesus was the Messiah after all. That the, the reason they missed it is he, because he didn't do exactly what they thought he was going to do. But when Peter stood up to preach on the day of Pentecost, God opened the eyes of thousands of people, and they were converted on the spot. And, uh, but all of these Jews, while it's a glorious thing to see them coming to Christ... The, you remember the next big thing, and it was a huge thing, was Peter's revelation that the Holy Spirit had also been given to the Gentiles. Remember, he was invited to Cornelius's house, and they began speaking in tongues. He's like, how can we deny them water for baptism when clearly they've been given the same Holy Spirit we have? And, uh, and this was a huge thing hurdle culturally for them and they had to have a council to deal with all right uh what exactly do we want to hold uh, you know since the since the gospel is now spreading among the gentile world how jewish do they have to become which parts of the law do they have to keep this was an ongoing conversation and it remained a roadblock for many many years and paul who was the most jewish of the Jews a pharisee a zealous for the for the things of God as he understood them he's the apostle that gets actually commissioned by God to preach to the gentile world and this is so it's, this is his legacy are the churches that he founded and established and encouraged and strengthened and wrote to over the course of his ministry in the greek world the non-jewish world and those, uh, you know, word didn't travel quite as fast then as it does today, but there were lines of communication, and the concern among some of these, they were Christians, you understand, but they were Jewish Christians, and they had this sort of proprietary affection for their Jewish roots. They were grateful that they had been saved, that they had been redeemed, and had come to Christ the Messiah. And it's not that they were opposed member, it was a it was a it was a hurdle but they had cleared it they understood that he was also the savior of the greeks the savior of the gentiles they were okay with that but they still in their mind their 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 limited understanding jesus was ultimately the messiah and savior for the jews Therefore, if the Gentiles were going to be saved by this Messiah, they had to become Jews first. You understand? They weren't against Greeks coming to Christ. And when I say Greek, same thing as Gentile. Interchangeable terms in terms of what we're reading here. They weren't against. In fact, they were for Greeks coming to Christ. But since you could only accept the Jewish Messiah if you were Jewish, you had to do it in that order. And if you happened to get it out of order then that's fine. You can embrace your Jewishness even after you confess Christ. How do we do that? Circumcision. And so the Judaizers would come into these churches that Paul had preached the gospel to, who had embraced the gospel, and say, glad you're, uh, Glad we're all sort of par- on the same team here, but you, you forgot something. Uh, we are glad that you know the same Christ we know, but you need to be circumcised. You need to have respect for our law. After all, the Messiah you embraced is the Jewish Messiah. You need to embrace your, your new Jewish heritage. And it started with circumcision, but they wanted to sneak the whole law in. And Paul is absolutely astounded, not that the Judaizers are coming in here and saying this, but that the Galatians start to embrace this. And Paul can't believe it. You want to see something interesting, go through the first few verses of the other epistles, Colossians, Ephesians, Thessalonians, and look, after the greeting, you know, uh, Paul, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and our Father. And then the next thing is almost always, I thank God for you. I make mention of you in my prayers. I'm so thankful for this. You know, this, it's a general, uh, it's a pattern that he follows where he, he, sort of, he gives, makes sure they know how much he loves them, appreciates the relationship. And then if there's correction to be made, then he'll move on to that. Look how Galatians starts. We'll start in verse 1 of chapter 1. Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, not from man or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any gospel to you, any other gospel to you, other than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. That's pretty strong. Now that last part, You know, I think it's kind of one of the dangers of of taking a verse that is true out of context. It's not that we completely misinterpret it, but we can misapply it, because this has been used to argue against other religions. And we know, of course, that all religions are not equally true. This is one of the great lies of the age. You know, it doesn't matter what you believe. If you believe, if it's true for you, we can all respect that. We all have different paths to God that is not true if Christianity is true Islam is false and and Buddhism is false and Hinduism is false not that there aren't snippets and reflections of truth in other religions but we're talking about the core message they couldn't be more different you know I've said this before too mathematically speaking it's possible that they're all false I'm just saying if Christianity is true and I'm convinced it is then these other ones are false they can't all be true it's nonsense to speak that way But he's not talking about people who practice different religions. He's not, for instance, referring to people coming in and preaching the gospel, quote-unquote, of some Roman god. That's not what he's talking about at all. He's talking about a perversion of the gospel that he has preached. So in our day, the parallel would not be somebody coming to our house and trying to convert us to Hinduism or Islam or Buddhism. It's be more like the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses, people who claim to believe the same gospel we believe, but they've twisted it into something that's quite different from the gospel that Paul preached and that we received. So this specifically, of course, these were Jews, and the gospel that they are preaching actually has a, a very compelling presentation It must have been compelling, because these Gentiles who had already received the gospel, received Christ, were apparently being drawn away. And if you read on in chapter 1, you see just how important uh, it is that it is Paul who is writing this, because the stuff he's writing about, it could have been written by a Gentile. But if it had been written by a Gentile, it would have been just as true, but then you could have just the response could have been, well, that's just because you don't want to embrace it. And I understand why you would preach against this uh, apostle Gentile, uh, because you don't want to be circumcised. You don't want to embrace the law. You don't want to lay down your cultural heritage and embrace ours. No, this was written by a Jew of Jews, somebody who had excelled in Judaism, somebody who, if they, who had probably more right uh, than the vast majority of the Jewish Christian world to insist on the things the Judaizers were insisting on. He was a legalistic Jew, a Pharisee. Uh, He was so dedicated at one time to his religion that he had been actively persecuting the church because he thought originally that Christianity was a refutation of everything that he had learned and held dear for his whole life. And as a matter of establishing his apostolic authority to deal with this, still in chapter 1, verse 15, it says, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after, and in verse 18 it says, then after three years he went up in, to Jerusalem. It's, it's super important here. He's not, Paul is not making the case that true Christianity means you're never taught by men. He's talking about his apostolic authority. When God called me, and he doesn't recount the episode here, but you remember, I mean, he, he acknowledges that God had his hand on him from his mother's womb. But Paul's conversion story was pretty dramatic, wasn't it? Blinds him, knocks him off his horse, uh, divinely guides him to the house of Ananias. But then, he went for three years. Doesn't say who he was with or exactly what he did, but you understand, he didn't go straight to the apostles and get the Jewish version of this. He was taught by God himself. The truth that Paul shares, there's nothing wrong. And most preachers today, most good, God-called, genuine preachers and teachers are teaching and preaching what they have been taught as we you can use this in a number of contexts but it is certainly true even as believers that we stand on the shoulders of giants we're able to know and embrace what we know and embrace because of the work of so many who've gone before us down through the centuries paul went and just was with god and jesus christ revealed this stuff to him so when he writes this stuff he doesn't he you never see paul writing stuff you know i've been thinking about this i could be wrong about it but here's what i think he doesn't do this. He goes, this is what I got from Jesus Christ. And that's why he says it so specifically early on. If you hear, I'm so, con- I got this from Jesus and I've shared it with you. So even if I come back later, if I come back next year and say, you know what? I changed my mind. We should all be Jews after all. Don't listen to me. Let me be accursed. If an angel appears to you and preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed. If anybody shares with you something other than what I've shared, because I am so sure I got this from Jesus Christ himself. This is how passionate he is and how secure he is in what he got from the Lord. After that, then, three years after that, he visits Peter. He goes to Jerusalem. He sees Peter, and he sees James, and then he goes on a missionary journey and then after 14 years goes to Jerusalem again and presents himself before the apostles at large, those who are still alive. And he says in chapter 2 that he had Titus with him. Titus was a Gentile, and he's with Paul in Jerusalem meeting with the Jewish Christian apostolic authorities. This is all important because here is Paul, he has, he's, a proven, he's already met with Peter and James. Doesn't give us a whole lot of detail about that meeting here. Uh, but he goes, does this missionary journey. He, he recruits and trains Titus along the way. Takes Titus, not a Jewish believer, a Greek believer. Takes him back to Jerusalem, not just on the outskirts, but to Christian church central. This is the Tulsa of the Middle East. Uh, this This is where all the apostolic authorities are there, and they are really, they are in charge of the doctrine. And even in that environment, nobody suggested that Titus needed to be circumcised. This is one of the big points that Paul argues here. If circumcision is so important to Jewish, genuine Jewish Christianity, then why didn't James, Peter, John, he names these guys, why didn't any of them insist that Titus, a Greek right there in their midst, who they acknowledged was a Christian, should be be circumcised? Nobody did. In chapter 2, we'll pick it up in verse 6, but from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, he's acknowledging that Peter is sort of the preeminent apostle in terms of uh, preaching to the Jewish world, but he was the one who was in charge of, uh, overall, in charge of preaching to the Gentiles. Uh, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. So then, a little bit later, he... he uh, describes a face-to-face meeting with Peter in Antioch, Antioch of Syria. Again, this is the missionary hub, not, the, not one of the churches he's writing to here. He's saying, I was in Antioch, Peter came down, and he was mixing nicely with the Gentile church. You know, Peter, I'm sure, sees himself as kind of an important figure in the Gentile church because of what happened at Cornelius' house. The big Gentile, this was where the barrier was broken down. And so Peter's mixing nicely with the Gentile crowd until James shows up and some of the other Jews. And then Peter, either in an effort not to offend the Jews who had just showed up, or maybe, as I kind of see it, more of an elitist attitude, he sort of withdraws from the Gentiles and starts associating only with the Jewish guests. And he said this atmosphere and this division was so pervasive that for a while even Barnabas was swept up in this. And it offended Paul, and it said he opposed him to his face. And uh, there's a super important part here. Let's just read it in verse 14, chapter 2, verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a jew live the same manner of the, live in the manner of the gentiles and not as the jews why do you compel gentiles to live as jews we who are jews by nature and not sinners of the gentiles knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law but by faith in jesus christ even we sorry even we have believed in christ jesus that we might not be justified by faith in christ Sorry, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore, not, therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Now, most of what he's saying is pretty clear, but I want to make sure we understand some things. He's saying that Peter clearly has not had a problem with not living like a Jew. He's saying Peter has not clung to the legalism of the law and he's okay with that until suddenly he's being scrutinized by the jews that show up and then suddenly he turns into a legalist but since he personally has no problem with not living like a jew why is he actually and so many others why are why is anybody trying to make the non-jews live like jews Let me try to rephrase that. If the Jews who labored under the law for years are now free from the law because of Christ Jesus, why is it suddenly important for them to force non-Jews to include the law? And what he's saying here is we, Jews of all people, ought to know that there's nothing to be gained by trying to live by the law. And how do we know that? Because we tried it for centuries. We And it was a good law. We had the perfect law, but we couldn't keep it. We, of all people, should be rejoicing that salvation doesn't come from Jewish law, and here you are actually trying to enforce it on non-Jews. It's not just hypocrisy, it's lunacy. You who were born and raised with the law know better than anybody else how impossible it is to keep. And now that you've been freed from it, you want to force it down the throats of Gentiles who it's new to. And then he says, maybe what you're saying is, uh, maybe your justification for this attitude is that you see even those of us who confess Christ are not uh, manifestly perfect. You still see evidence of, of sin in us from time to time. What are you saying? That Christ's work was insufficient? Or, that, or even worse, are you saying that Christ makes us sin? Of course not. We're growing in this, and so are you. All we're saying is that any good that we do as believers is Christ in us. The good that I manage to manifest in my life is simply me allowing Christ in his power and his perfection to live through me. I can't take credit for that. Look, there was nothing wrong with the law, right? Right? But the law could not compel me to do good because the law couldn't change me. And the problem all along was my nature, my sin nature. So ultimately what the law could do was convict me. And because I was guilty, it condemned me. But now Christ lives in me. The law pronounced a death sentence on me. And that sentence has been carried out. I am crucified with Christ. This is the big, big message of Galatians. And we see it again, probably even more elegantly, in Colossians. That the big change here now is that we are in Christ. If crucifixion was necessary, if death was necessary, it's retroactively effective because as soon as I am in Christ, his crucifixion counts as my crucifixion. The old man is dead. Why are you stressing the law? If it was even possible to be right with God by keeping the law, If that were even... It's not like, well, sure, it's hard, but this is really God's plan. We should have all just been keeping the law, and now we want these Gentile believers to keep the law. And Paul's saying, if that were even a remote possibility that we could be right before God by keeping the law, then Christ died in vain. It was a waste for Christ to die if we could save ourselves. It was precisely because none of us can save ourselves by our good living, by our right living. We cannot be righteous before God by anything other than than Christ's death. That's why he died. He died for our sin because there was literally no other way for us to be saved. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and we'll be wrapping it up here pretty shortly. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of the faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Not that we believe Abraham. He's just believing Abraham is what he calls him. So what he's saying, and this is a, another tough pill for the Jews to swallow, is that the true descendants of Abraham and the rightful inheritors of the blessing that God promised his seed are those who follow Abraham's faith, not those who carry Abraham's genetic material. And then he hammers and hammers and hammers at the inability of the law to impart righteousness. He explains that the law, therefore, uh, was best understood as a tutor, a teacher. And we'll get to that a little more next week. Uh, and, and next week he also talks, and uh, we'll get into this too, and it'll remind you of a song, about the difference between slaves and sons. Slaves and heirs. And how uh, the Jews of the Old Testament, really, uh, ultimately they were heirs, but since they had not received the inheritance yet. They were still under the law. He compares it to a, uh, a natural heir. You might have a, a great ruler, uh, a, a man of a, a great house with a great fortune. And his son stands to inherit everything. So in that sense, in terms of who he is, he's, one of the, he's the greatest person in the house besides his father. But until he reaches a certain age, he is taught by teachers. And he has to be taken and guided everywhere. And this was the part that the law played. It points us to the place where we can become true inheritors of everything God has promised. I do not know if Paul ever wrote anything more passionate than this letter to the Galatian churches. You can easily read his frustration. The favorite thing he says in in this book, I will save until next week. But he really lets the Judaizers have it at one point, and really just making fun of how important they think circumcision is. You can read his frustration, you can read his anger, almost a desperation to see these people free of this notion that they can be right before God by their works, the works of the law. And this really speaks to us today. Now we know better, if we are born again, if we have made our confession of faith in Jesus Christ, somehow, if we came to that point, we were made to understand that we cannot save ourselves by the works of the law. We know that, right? That's why Jesus died. And this is why Paul says... Paul could argue the law all day long, but he says, I'm not going to preach anything except the crucified Christ. It is his death, it is his blood, it is his resurrection that makes the difference, the only difference. So we're not, we're, we don't need to go back to the law to make people understand this. And we certainly don't need to add the law to those who are already saved. This is what he was talking about when he said, when Titus and I were in Jerusalem, all these men who were great... Uh, they had nothing to add to me. They didn't correct me and say, oh, Paul, you're doing a great job out there now, but you, you, you need to you know, tie this while you're here. You, ought, you might want to be circumcised. They had nothing to add to Paul's gospel. So they said, no, why are you trying to add to it now? With us, it's not a matter mostly of us keeping Jewish law. But are we trying to justify ourselves before God by living a good life? because that's most people. This is the world we live in. When you try to define sin in secular society, society hardly knows what the word means anymore. And when you start talking about what God says, what the Bible says, one of the most common responses is, if it's not hurting anybody else, there's nothing wrong with it. Right? So we think, I'm living a life that's not hurting anybody else. I care about my fellow man. And that doesn't mean you're living uh, in a manner that we might use to describe as hedonistic or anything like that. It just, but, but it also doesn't mean you've surrendered your life to Christ. There's the humility. There are too many people, and I'm talking good men, good women. Uh, this, this was probably the greatest challenge, I think, for a... Uh, a person from what we, what we have called the greatest generation, this generation that came up through the Depression, fought World War II, bootstrap mentality, kind of created the world we still live in today, is this idea, because they were so uh, good at m- providing these things, accomplishing these things, it's very hard to come to a place of humility and recognize that my goodness, my effort, isn't enough to get me into heaven. Well, what do I need that for? I've never lied. I've never cheated. I've never, and they really have lived exemplary lives. But we have to trust the truth of the Bible that says there is none righteous. No, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All like sheep have gone astray. When the Bible talks about sinners, it's talking about everyone who ever lived except Jesus. The only way, and I'm talking about heaven and hell here, but I'm also talking about the kingdom of God here. The only way into right relationship with God that leads to eternal life in heaven, the only way is through the cross of Christ, through the blood shed on the cross, the death of Jesus Christ. If, if there were any other way, God would not have put Jesus through that. Jesus himself would not have gone through it. It was precisely because it was the only way that the cross happened. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.